All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. We thought it would be inappropriate to begin discussion on the 1930-31 Best Picture winner, Cimarron, without a full disclaimer that this movie uses racist stereotypes and depicts racist agendas. These racist moments were supported by the Academy as they made the decision to award this film as its top honor of Best Picture. We will discuss technical aspects of the film that we did like, but it would not be right nor courteous to move forward without making it known that we do not condone what is depicted in Cimarron. Ben and I were discussing how to essentially create and introduce all these episodes. We really wanted to focus on like a theme for each episode. And we knew just with the history and our kind of basic knowledge of the Academy, even before starting this podcast, that at some point we would have to discuss race as it's like so predominant, whether the discussion about uh, the races in films that are nominated or win, or just the standard practice of looking back and seeing all the racist things that were in these films back in the early 1900s. I definitely agree with that. And just to recognize, you know, our own privilege and as white males to even talk about this film, you know, it it is a little bit uncomfortable to even approach this film uh, from many different angles, but especially from many, many, many racist parts of this film, it's not easy to look past and we just have to first attack it when we open up this episode um, because unfortunately it just depicts so many awful things uh, throughout the entire film. What we've usually done is really focus on the year that the film takes place in. Yeah. This time around, we wanted to get a glimpse into the future. So for full context, we're recording in 2020. And just so it happens in September, um, the Academy announced some big changes when it comes to race and inclusion in the Oscars. To encourage equitable representation on and off screen in order to better reflect the diversity of the moviegoing audience, films will have to meet requirements pertaining to representation and inclusion to be eligible for the Best Picture Oscar, beginning with a 96th Oscar race, which will recognize achievements from 2024 and be held in 2025. The Academy of Motion Picture Art and Sciences announced Tuesday, starting with the 96th Oscars, a film will have to meet at least two of the four following standards to be eligible for Best Picture. Standard A, on-screen representation, themes, and narratives. A1, lead or significant supporting actors. At least one of the lead actors or significant supporting actors is from an underrepresented racial or ethnic group. Asian, Hispanic, slash Latinx, Black, slash African American, Indigenous, slash Native American, Alaskan Native, Middle Eastern slash North African, Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander, or other underrepresented race or ethnicity. A2. General Ensemble Cast. At least 30% of all actors in secondary or minor roles are from at least two of the following underrepresented groups. Women, racial or ethnic groups, LGBTQ+, people with cognitive or physical disabilities, or who are deaf or hard of hearing. A3. Main story slash subject matter. The main storyline's themes or narrative of the film is centered on the underrepresented groups. Standard B, creative leadership and project team. Creative leadership and department heads must also meet all of the following underrepresented groups. B2, other key roles, and B3, overall crew composition. At least 30% of the film's crew is from the same underrepresented groups. Standard C, 
industry access and opportunities. Paid apprenticeship and internships must represent the underrepresented groups. C2, training opportunities and skills development. Standard D, audience development. D1, representation in marketing, publicity, and distribution. Alrighty, Ben. So reading through all these different standards that the film must qualify for at least two of each of the four standards. How do you feel about this? Do you think this is is pushing a narrative based on a lot of people's feedback? Or do you think this is the right thing to do to automatically kind of set these standards so that we do have more inclusion on best pictures uh, overall from the Academy? I think it's really good. I do have to say that's really good. I think that it's also tough for my position uh, to give like a full breakdown of everything because there's a lot of nuances. People have already kind of criticize these inclusions because there have been a lot of films in the past that would just meet these requirements um, already. So it's like, it's like good, but then it feels like that it's not going to fully work. But I, the, the more important things for me are the standard A and standard B parts. Uh, standard A is more for the on-screen representation and the themes and the narratives and the storylines about it. So pushing more of a non-white uh, narrative. Uh, and I was actually reading a New York Times article that was talking about this past Oscar ceremony in 2020 and how even though a movie like Parasite won and how it seems like we are making those steps, there still are a lot of white male narratives that are being nominated for Best Picture, uh, especially focusing on older stuff like World War II or even World War One and stuff that happens in Victorian-aged England or colonial America. So it is great that's going to push more executives and producers to find underrepresented storylines and narratives for a lot of people that can't or don't see themselves on screen right now. So I, I really do applaud it for that. But then I do also know that in the past, not even recently, but even going further back, that a lot of those Oscar nominated movies that people would criticize would still meet those requirements. Mm -hmm. So it's a little tough. It's all it's like really good and I think that it's going to do good. Um but I do foresee that it may be taken advantage of in some ways. Yeah, definitely. I could see that. It's kind of a dual-edged sword where it's like you love that they're kind of pushing the hand to allow these kind of creative decisions to kind of change. But on the other hand, you don't want to push it too hard where it's like you have to meet all four standards. But if you are pushing for at least two standards, you know, you're hoping that they're going to be pushing for like the standard day for representation on screen and, and the narratives and also push for the creative side where, you know, you have the the casting directors, cinematographers and directors and, and actors that kind of represent the behind the scenes for the production overall. But then on the other side, I wonder if people like will abuse this, you know, whether you hire an intern because they're LGBTQ plus only because you can check that off. And hopefully when it comes to Oscar season, you can check that off without having like representation in the film itself. And then same with like the final standard, the D standard when it comes to audience development. And it really just focuses on hiring and having representation for like your marketing department, publicity and distribution. But again, is that just taking away from the fact that they're just not going to be on screen? You know, uh, what people want most is just seeing their likeness, I think, on screen and and to just kind of push more stories that we just don't see as often. While it's great to hire people of all sorts of uh, backgrounds and especially these underrepresented groups, I wonder how people are going to essentially finagle the system because that's what it's always been for award shows. How do you one-up somebody? How do you like cheat the system here and there to just kind of still get on that same playing field or even bump yourself above everyone else? Yeah, uh, certainly. And and I think that I had those same issues with standard C&D because those feel really easy 
to take advantage of and really easy to just to especially with to fill two out of the four those are like probably the easiest to fill without really much difficulty so it's uh it's a little problematic and my hopes are standard a and b are the ones that are taking more advantage of especially uh when we're talking about you know creative leadership and just the key roles in the film crew because there is certainly a trend with uh oscar winners especially there being only one uh female to win best director and there's never been uh, a black filmmaker to win best director there have been a few uh, black writers that have won you know screenplay uh nominations and awards but nothing in terms of a director um Again, even with actors, it, it's such a it's such a, a minefield because there is there's a lot of issues, especially recent, because this is coming off of in 2014, 15, when it was hashtag Oscars so white and there was only white nominees in all the acting categories. And even recently, there still wasn't a lot of uh, underrepresented actors and actresses in those categories. So our hopes are that a that standards a and b are the ones that get taken advantage of the most but there is certainly a fear that c and d are going to be taking advantage even more and it is going to create a lot more problems down the road and what's interesting looking back really haven't hit a landmine that is as controversial in terms of like the the content and the racist like agendas that are going to push from characters and maybe even the film overall which we'll talk about about samarin but i'm curious like where when we're looking back and we look at the Academy, we've done some research to try to see how much they've like acknowledged or looked back at these Oscars or at least these Best Picture winners. Have you noticed that they've addressed any of these, these concerns or at least these problems with the films? Yeah, I mean, and to also go back a little bit, you know, in Broadway Melody, there's a lot of sexism, uh, which we talked about. And it was so this isn't like the first movie where like a lot of these problems show up, but it was more that this film and Simmerin for the fourth Oscars that it was like really in your face, some of the racism mm -hmm. and it was really hard to not want to talk about. So yeah, doing research for this film in particular, there isn't much out there. And I found that to be really, really frustrating. I found I was really annoyed while researching because I wanted to know what people thought about this film and outside of the glowing reviews at the time of its release in 1930, there really isn't much out there. And I also found it to be interesting when we're talking about uh, the modern day approach to these issues because it's not brought up. It, no one brings up the fact that the Oscars picked a very racist movie to win Best Picture um, when talking about the issues. It, some of the issues are more focused on the representation in the acting categories and more on the storylines today, but never looking at the past. And I think that we do need to look at the past and to acknowledge that. And one of the things that I really am hoping for uh, slash excited about is for the Academy Museum, which is opening up next year in April 2021, because, yeah, they are going to have this museum now dedicated to film, dedicated to the Oscars and, and the Academy in general. And that's going to be great. And I hope that there's a hall of like best picture winners, like the like the Hall of Fame, if you want to call, call it. But it's just like a hall of all the best picture winners. And I really hope that Simran is talked about with what's wrong with it and not just the general like oh this was just the first western that won or it had this great production design like it needs to be talked about for what it is and there isn't much out there from the academy to talk about that on their website when they talk about their ceremony there's barely any info about these issues and it's just really problematic to now talk about 
in present day and not have it there for us to dive into because we now have to just say like are they just hiding it are we like we're questioning the intentions behind why there's nothing really out there or why it's not even talked about this past year we saw a big blow up explosion in uh, the warner brothers side with the hbo max when they kind of pushed uh, gone with the wind on their streaming platform and it's funny to see that film since it's kind of always been talked about and it's always remained in like the the film zeitgeist i guess when he talks about like iconic classic films but Simran has just kind of gone blank from the entire palette of film culture and even the Oscar conversation. No one ever talks about this film. Yeah. So when we're approaching the question of, you know, this film as a best picture winner, it certainly stands out for the wrong reasons. Um, we were saying that before at the Broadway Melody a few episodes ago, uh, but that was a little bit more because it was just really, it was poorly done from the technical aspects, but Simran wasn't. But then again, the storyline and, the narrative and the way it approaches it is really just problematic and it's really hard again like to not look past and it's too easy for me and john to sit here and talk about it um, from the place that we are at from our own viewpoints and it's unfortunate again that it's not brought up more i really wish it was brought up by a lot of people who are advocating for more representation on screen and to really look back at um what was done in the past and you know we brought up gone with the wind which it's great that we now have uh on hbo max you know it has a discussion before the actual showing of the film but this one probably won't this one is going to slip by and there are probably so many they're going to slip by so and i do commend though that the academy is planning on opening a black cinema exhibit when the academy museum does open but that's more focused on black filmmakers and creators which is great but I still wish that they would talk about the lack of knowledge and information about this film because, again, it feels like that they are avoiding it purposefully. And so when we put into this collective of Best Picture winners, it certainly stands out. And I feel like we just have to always ask this question, John, is Simran worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1930-31? So welcome back to Worthy, episode four. I'm Ben. I'm John. And this week, we're going to be talking about the fourth Academy Awards from 1930-31, which gave the film Cimarron the top honors that year. Cimarron is the first Western to win Best Picture, which is a category that we haven't seen yet, and it's actually not represented much in other Best Picture winners. So before we get into that, though, you know, we appreciate you guys listening to these past few episodes. And this one's definitely going to be a bit of a different conversation, as you can tell from our intro discussion uh, on this film. Yeah, I think even the mention of calling Simran a Western is just a complicated matter, along with so many different complicated things that are in this film. I think this conversation is going to go all sorts of different directions, but it's this has been one of the most like interesting films in terms of looking back as a retrospective of how disturbing yet kind of fascinating this this whole entire film is. So I'm excited to jump in. Yeah, it's certainly fascinating for uh, many different reasons. I think that we just have to get right into it and kind of talk about it. So without further ado, drumroll please, here's Simran. Thank you. 
A newspaper editor settles in an Oklahoma boomtown with his reluctant wife at the end of the 19th century. The Oklahoma land rush of 1889 prompts thousands to travel to the Oklahoma Territory to grab free government land. Yancey Kravitz and his young bride Sabra cross the border from Kansas to join the throngs. In the ensuing race, Yancey is outwitted by a young prostitute, Dixie Lee, who takes the prime piece of real estate, the Bear Creek claim, that Yancey had targeted for himself. His plans for establishing a ranch throttled. Yancey moves into the town of Osage, a boomer town, where he confronts and kills Lon Yotis, an outlaw who has killed the prior publisher of the local newspaper. Having a background in publishing himself, Yancey establishes the Oklahoma Wigwam, a weekly newspaper to help turn the frontier camp into a respectable town. After the birth of their son, Cimarron, a gang of outlaws threaten Osage, led by the kid who happens to be an old acquaintance of Yancey's. To save the town, Yancey faces and kills the kid. Beset by guilt over his killing of the kid, when another land rush appears, Yancey leaves Sabra and his children to participate in settling the Cherokee Strip. After his departure, Saber takes over the publication of the Oklahoma Wigwam and raises her children until Yancey returns five years later, just in time to represent Dixie Lee, who had been charged with being a public nuisance and won her acquittal. Osage continues to grow, as does the territory of Oklahoma, which gains statehood in 1907 and benefits from the early oil boom of the 1900s, including the Native American tribes that Yancey supports through editorials in his newspaper, after which Yancey once again disappears from Osage for several years. At the time, Sabra is vehemently anti-Native American, despite her son's involvement with Native American woman. Years later, when Sabra becomes the first female congresswoman from the state of Oklahoma, she lauds the virtues of her then-Native American daughter-in-law. Sabra and Yancey are reunited one final time when she rushes to his side after he has rescued numerous oil drillers from a devastating explosion. He dies in her arms. Simran starred... Richard Dix as Yancey Kravitz, Irene Dunn as Saber Kravitz, Estelle Taylor as Dixie Lee, and Eugene Jackson as Isaiah. Simran was nominated for Outstanding Production, Best Director for Resley Ruggles, Best Actor for Richard Dix, Best Actress for Irene Dunn, Best Writing Adaptation for Howard Estabrook, Best Art Direction for Max Rhee, and Best Cinematography for Edward Cronjager. So where we begin this discussion of Cimarron is actually at the way beginning of the film where it shows and depicts the Oklahoma land rush of 1889. And for those who don't know, it happened on April 22nd of 1889 with an estimated 50,000 people lined up uh, for at high noon to just rush into Oklahoma and just start claiming land, which made for a pretty cool spectacle right off the top of this film. Yeah, I think it's one of the most notable scenes, and I think for most people looking back at this film, it's one of the scenes that people remember the most. It was a crazy, crazy scene where it opens up, and you have thousands of thousands of actors and different kind of wagons and all sorts of different like horse-drawn carriages that are all prepared and ready for this huge, massive race. And it's like something that I've never even really seen in film like this, especially how many people there are, how big you can get a sense of how big the budget is already from the very beginning. Yeah. How many camera angles they switch throughout the entire process. It's, it's, it's an awe to see the very beginning of this, of the film. Yeah. The, fir- the first time I watched this, I was like, holy, holy shit, this is really cool. You know, I, it, it was not, you know, you obviously hear about the Oklahoma land rush when in school, you know, growing up, but you don't actually have a, a way to picture it in your head. And so 
when it when everything started unfolding when i first saw this film i was like oh my god that makes complete sense first off <laughs> like that's how it's done and second like this is really cool it's really well done uh but it does start out a little this is where the problematic stuff does start to happen because the first line of the film is of a native american man in the crowd of people who are getting ready to line up and he's just kind of walking around and he kind of like starts to look at someone's something on someone's horse and the guy says to him this is the first line of the film is hey drop that red skin and get out so really bad off the top so you know it's cool as a spectacle at first but then you also have those racist elements right at the top of the beginning so it's like uh where do we go from here yeah as soon as that starts it's like oh is it this kind of western like is it this kind yeah. of film oh man uh, who i hope that's not the lead character um but yeah. this this famous land rush scene uh, involved 5,000 extras, uh, 28 cameramen, six still photographers, and 27 camera assistants. And uh, this film was later on remade. And when MGM remade the film, they actually used the same exact shots uh, from the original film here. So it definitely carried on its legacy of at least this iconic scene. But yeah, like you said, we're already starting off with the first line of the film being like, oh man, what yeah. is this? What am I about to get myself into here? Yeah, that's certainly how I felt. And, you know, but still to like want to talk about this like land rush because it's again, we, we keep saying it's impressive. And I feel like one of the things that was most impressive for me was the amount of like little storylines they were able to pull just from like having people r running and uh, rushing in the crowd. Because uh, you had at one point you had one a family whose dad is like who's like children is like bothering him and he's just like i'm an like annoyed he's like i'm just trying to get there i'm just trying to get there just to get one piece of land then you also have yancey's character who's trying to get to the bear creek land and him and dixie lee have a bit of a uh i don't want to call it a standoff but she tricks him really well to get the land uh, away from him um you just have some like other ones you have one of like of a horse carriage breaking down which makes for some really cool like stunts and so there you can definitely tell there's a lot of coordination and thought into the filmmaking of it which kind of echoes when we were talking about all quiet on the western front which is like it, they've these films have started to push the limits and started to push like what they can do in terms of the choreography or choreography of big events and big set pieces so it's really impressive um certainly from a just from the technical standpoint that they're able to pull this off yeah, it's very impressive from the the director Wesley Ruggles who kind of sets the scene and you already I, at least I already got the impression from the very beginning that this is a uh, um it's hard to say subtle because a lot of these films even this film looking back it's not very subtle in terms of uh its agendas for each character and the overall film um but we're getting a more sense of like a naturalism that we haven't seen in the first three films in terms of the, the dialogue and some of just letting the action kind of speak for itself without over overusing um, dialogue cards or just overusing dialogue because it's your first time to kind of like jump into the sound here. So there's there is some nuance throughout the film in terms of like the direction from Ruggles. Yeah, certainly. And uh, it, it's just really it's well set up and the, the design of the shots, you make it really big and really wide, especially because you're dealing with what's supposed to be just open land and and landscapes in general so it it has that like this open feeling and, and this it's almost like a widescreen format but without the widescreen mm -hmm. uh, you know actual film to to pull it off uh with how they're able to do it so kudos for this uh which is probably my favorite part of the film just because i'm impressed with how they're able to pull it off 
Sure. Yeah, I think that's I think that's why it's kind of remained the main scene that people remember from this film when they talk about it, because I do think it stands out, at least from the most technical aspect. The huge just production of the entire beginning kind of leads and sets the tone for the overall like production design, would you say, throughout the entire film, this huge production design of recreating Oklahoma throughout these kind of stages of its life. I found like want to be one of the most fascinating parts of the entire film. Just the setting yeah. and, and themes there. When talking about some of the themes of the film, which is the development and sort of talking about manifest destiny that a lot of uh, colonialists and early Americans had with expanding this country. And so the beginning starts out really open. And then as the film goes on, we start to add these elements of a town, of a city, and just of a way of life, which works well within this film. And so as we leave the opening scene, we then get more of a more into the narrative and more into the lead characters of Yancey and Sabra. So they go back to Kansas after Yancey fails because uh, he's tricked by Dixie Lee. Um, and he's like, well, I still want to go back to Oklahoma because he's still passionate about his, like his role in, in settling and creating a new world in America and this new way of life. So he's definitely has these like admirable um, intentions for his family and, and for the country in general. So he pretty much just is like, hey, family, I'm leaving. I'm taking my wife. And then Sabra's mother is like, you can't do that. And she's like, yeah, fuck it. He's my he's my husband and I'm just going to go for it. And when you jump into that scene uh, right after the land rush moment and he fails and he comes back and he's talking to his family and they're around the dinner table, you already notice something very disturbing as you see like a young African child who's Isaiah in the film, actually one of the only characters that isn't listed with a last name, even though this character Isaiah is very prominent. But you notice him hanging from this this kind of like wooden structure above the dining room table. And then immediately it's another one of those like gut-wrenching turns where it's like, what is this? Like what is yeah. this movie? Like it has this bizarre like turn already like in terms of like comedy as they're using this like young black actor as like the comedy throughout the entire film so what was your first take when you saw isaiah hanging there above the the kitchen table well outside of having to screw my jaw back up because it was so low to the floor um, <laughs> it, i th this was a moment where i was like yeah we're we're entering a movie that's like just it's gonna so, be bad so beyond it, times yeah yeah it is it is so beyond time so isaiah is like fanning the family with like this big i guess you want to call it a branch think of like a uh you know when we always picture like the the pharaoh of egypt with like mm -hmm. his which again in the fan yeah yeah they're you know be, him being fan so isaiah is doing that for this family and he is he wants to listen to into their conversation so he stops her a little bit and, and saber's mom is just kind of like boy like get back to like fanning us and mm -hmm. you're like oh, okay well you're not a great person and then they yeah and then they push the comedy aspect of the scene where they have isaiah fall and he lands i think it's like whipped cream it looks like yeah. a dessert that yeah. he falls into and then i would guess it would have to be his parents or some relatives you know of isaiah's rush into the dinner to kind of like pull him out of there so it's like they are intending to make this like pull off as a comedic moment, but in reality, it's just like uncomfortable because here's this black kid fanning a bunch of rich white people. And then here are these other black people who are clearly serving the family and they are trying to get him out of there because they're, they're ashamed in a way. So it's, it's highly, very uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. And, yeah, this and is, then, 
five minutes into the film. Yeah, from the very beginning, you're already seeing all of this, and you're trying to like piece together like what his involvement uh, is into the entire story because he they made a moment to kind of like single him out and show him in that introduction, and then we finally learn a little bit more, and it's like Isaiah's like has this drive and goal to go and leave Kansas and go to Oklahoma with Yancey and his family. Um, and there's not like any really reasoning from him. It just happens in that same scene where he's just like, I'll go, like, I'll come with you. Like, I'll help you guys. Like, that'd be great. And his mom is there and she's just telling him, no, no, you definitely shouldn't do that. Like it's dangerous, but I guess being his own person, he just gets to go and, and comes with Yancey because Yancey approves. Um, and in that moment, I found one of the most disturbing parts of this entire movie. While there is some very direct, blatantly racist uh, shit throughout this entire movie that's so offensive, I found this one particular line basically encompassed the entire movie and how just like blind and ignorant the entire film is. Right. So when Isaiah is kind of saying, please, I can go, I can go. And Yancey's like excited. He's like, yeah, definitely, Isaiah, you can come with me. And right before the scene ends... Yancey says that loyalty is something money can't buy. And it's such a simple line and it basically ends the line. And I guess maybe they were saying like saying it as almost if it was humor, like a fun little like way to end the scene. But it, I'll read it one more time. That loyalty is something money can't buy. That one sentence alone is inferring that Isaiah and his family were previously slaves and yep. they broke out of being slaves but they were so loyal to their family that they stayed. They still work as the the staff to help the family cook and clean and do everything for the family. And it's like they're using that line as like a compliment to say like, oh, these these this this family that's helping us out, they're great. But it's like so insanely racist. It's like one of the most like insanely racist things that are in this movie. And it just sets the tone. I think that single line summarizes this entire film and how like blind it is. It feels like at times that they're like, oh, we're being very progressive, but really we're just racist on the inside. And yeah, I mean, it it alludes to so much that one line because it's like, oh, so he, how long has uh, Isaiah's family been with you guys? And at the same time, it's basically saying, well, they're part of this family and this like dynamic is there it's just ingrained in them so it's like of course they'd be loyal to us of course isaiah would be so happy just to join along you know and isaiah getting into uh the adventure if you want to call it with yancey and his family he like sneaks onto their carriage and he just hides in in like a in a blanket yeah, yeah he's like he's like under a blanket and yancey just finds him with like pulling the blanket out and, you know, I and I, we didn't even talk about how Isaiah even talks. Isaiah talks in the very uh, what you would expect out of a film from 1930s of a young black kid. He speaks in broken English where like it's a big draw. Yeah. yeah, it's big draw. It's words aren't pronounced correctly. And this is a kid. This is a kid that was given these lines to say. And I, it's horrifying. And, you know, you feel you just feel so bad watching it all unfold because you know that this isn't right and we just we can't condone it and so it is really disturbing um and so yeah so from there so now yancey has isaiah with them it's him sabra his their son simarin which is a little interesting that his name is simarin because it also that word means wild so why would they call their son that i don't know there's no but, explanation 
yeah there is no explanation like there's really no explanation for why but i guess that's why that's the name of the movie in a certain way he has nothing to do with the movie so it doesn't make any sense honestly it feels like a plot line they cut out or something i don't even know yeah it it really does yeah so now we're entering back into a stage so to kind of give a picture of the scene so now we're actually at a the 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 town is developed so this is like a again like when we talk about the set design the production design of the film it's really cool because they start out kind of a of a blank slate of land and all of a sudden now you have these towns there's there there's all these avenues and streets and one of them is called pahuska avenue which is like the main street but pahuska means like an old white-haired native american and simmering kind of starts making the uh the the typical stereotype the stereotypical uh, Native American chants, which his mother tells him to stop doing after uh, Yancey tells him like what that word means. And then Yancey says probably the one line of the film that I cannot get out of my head that haunts me to still right now. So they're riding down this street at night and there's all this commotion going on. And Yancey's pointing out to, you know, Sabra and Sabra like, look at the Look at the bar. Look at the hotel. Look at all this. This is also great. And then he points to a stand of watermelons. And he goes, lots of watermelons there, Isaiah. And Isaiah goes, yes, sir. I'm sure glad I came to Oklahoma. What the fuck? Yeah. (laughs) What the fuck is this? We are now incorporating one of the worst stereotypes of a just of a black person in general. And it, and you know, it. This is something from nineteen fucking thirty, and this is a part of it. So, the, and this is, it's part of a best picture, you know, winner that this is a part of. And oh my god, like when when that line happened, this is like twenty. This is I think eighteen minutes into the film. This is a two hour film. This is eighteen minutes in, and we have the main character who's supposed to represent progression and westward expansion and being an American and and being all this that you can be to fulfill your destiny and he's telling a this black kid that was part of his you know family's home that was essentially a slave in his family's house pointing out watermelon to him and saying oh don't those look great isaiah as if like it's the only thing isaiah can look forward to when he comes out with it when he gives up his life and his parents back home for this just for fucking watermelons yeah it's it's Shit. all comedy it's just all played up for comedy for some reason for some reason like his only character and his only reasoning to even be in the film is purely comedy. As we get forward and we talk about like his character role forward, there's really not much to it other than jokes that Yancey just keeps saying basically in reference to either his race or like him being a kid or just like he just constantly uses the punching bag of the movie to just like add some light tone to it. But obviously like it was racist back then. It's extremely fucking offensive nowadays that it's just like so blindingly just disgusting to see that moment it's just like oh man like how how is the how is the rest of this movie going to continue like this like this is horrible hard to watch yeah. and and you see shit like that and it's just like yeah no wonder the academy never talks about this movie why would they like they want to keep this as silent as possible so i think when you're bringing up the academy and their museum it's like man you have to own it right you have to like at least acknowledge it but by acknowledging it in like the 2020 world where everyone's gonna have a tweet storm about it like they probably don't even want to risk it but you know i mean you got to own up to your history and your past at this point and it's pretty shocking yeah 
Yeah, you do. And but now, but we have the platform to talk about Isaiah and the actor who played him, which was Eugene Jackson, um, who was a child actor uh, at the time. And so, some significance though with Isaiah's character is he's the first uh, black child, or probably the first black person. Uh, not entirely sure, but at least the first black child to have a speaking part in a major motion picture. So that's significant. But then again, he he was just used as the, you know happy-go-lucky typical stereotypical black kid in a lot of films and tv shows uh, he was in a show uh, called our gang which was kind of the prelude to the little rascals um which was uh, a bunch of different shorts that they would show yeah. before or after films that they kind of compiled into the in the 50s when they compiled it all together and turned it into the little rascals yeah exactly you know so he so he's like sort of has a little bit of fame and prominence um and he unfortunately passed away, uh, I think, in the early 2000s, uh, but he did uh, talk about it a little bit. He wrote a book called Eugene Pineapple Jackson, His Own Story, and even that nickname Pineapple comes from his hair, which was give, which was a nickname given by some film producers. Like producer, yeah, because yeah, they're like, oh, you look like a pineapple because your hair, which racist. Um, but he experienced other forms of racism with uh, only earning $55 a week compared to the white children uh, that he was working with, which was $75 a week. Uh, so you already have that whole discrepancy there. Um, he said that, you know, black kids had to look the part and they would put stuff on my hair to make it look kinkier, meaning that to make it look more black, essentially, which is really problematic and even in many of the reviews of the film there's little to no mention of it in a new york times review from july 27 uh, january 27th excuse me from 1931 uh there's no mention of isaiah and then from a new york daily news article from that same day the only line talked about eugene jackson in the movie was eugene jackson the smiling colored boy ingratiates himself to the audience really that's all you can say about him yeah, he's just Ugh. a poking gag. That's it. That's all they want to represent this film. So I think we wanted to just take the time and talk more about just Eugene Jackson as the man that he was and the kind of pioneering voice that he became, even though, you know, he, while he was looked at as just kind of like this joke and just this kind of like black card that white Hollywood and white producers could just pull. I think it just was in our own right to kind of show him you know go out look for his autobiography he has a really interesting story that definitely deserves more recognition certainly and i think one of the saddest things though is that he in some of the interviews later on in life he almost accepts that that was just his role to play in these films and he so he never really got to, to see where the film where hollywood and just filmmaking in general goes to in today's world and i know there are still a ton of issues but he didn't get to see that he didn't have to play that role just to have a voice uh, in these films he could have had better representation and better narratives and storylines that were just revolved him as a person and not based on what he looked like so he unfortunately had to kind of accept that as part of his career um but he said he was happy to do so because it provided for his family so i can appreciate that you know sentiment from him but i definitely wish he could have seen where 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 he his work could have landed him and where his representation could have been done better. So we will kind of touch a little bit more on Isaiah's character, but we should move a little bit on into some other aspects of this film. Yeah, so we talked a lot about um, Yancey and uh, a little bit about uh, Isaiah and, and Eugene Jackson. But what a lot of this film is really kind of centered on is Sabra, 
and Yancey. So the, the husband and wife aspect of the film is, is very much the core center of the film. You know, you have Yancey as this kind of like pioneering leader where all the men look up to him. You know, he's the pioneering guy that comes into town and is like, Oh, your newspaper sucks. Like you have this essentially like murderous cowboy who's just like holding all of you people down under gunfire and just kind of like harassing the town. He even killed the previous publisher for the uh, wigwam. So Yancey takes over and there's always conflict between Sabra, whether it's further on where Yancey wants to move and kind of grab more land or kind of fight in the in a war. He just there's just kind of this always constant back and forth between the two. But what's kind of centered in focus for most of the film is actually not even Yancey. It's more of like Sabra who becomes the main character throughout the entire film. Yeah, she sort of takes uh, precedence on the screen just because Yancey is unable to be stable in any part of his life. He's always, you know, Sabre gives some knowledge on this, just how he can't stay in like one place for like five years. So he's always a guy that's looking to get out, to expand, to do more. So Sabre does become a bigger presence in the film because she has to kind of take over and provide for her family and for this newspaper, which is, is unfortunately called the Oklahoma Wigwam. Really bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, so she does take over a little bit more precedence of the film, you know, so it's, it's great that she shows some of that stronger leadership. Um, but there, she, she is not a perfect character at all. Uh, so we can't give her too much credit. Um, no, I, I don't, honestly, I just don't think you can give her any credit in this movie. Yeah. Like she seems like this kind of like strong empowered woman. And it's like at the time when we look at this kind of error from beginning in the very early 1900s to up until about like 1929, where this film um, kind of like lands in its finale. She kind of wants to represent women in this women's suffrage movement. And that's a kind of big core part of this film. But at the same time, every decision, every kind of thought is always seen through the lens of like Yancey and like how he sees these issues. And it's always up to him to figure out like the final issue. Like as soon as he leaves and he comes back in uh, and there's a trial with Dixie, like, Nope, he's jumping in like he's the final say of everything. It's like everything she does has to get approved through him and or either just spawns from his own idea that she's just like, oh, yeah, you're right. After like an argument once. Yeah, she's like psychologically messed up because of his inability to just like truly just stay with her and establish a life with her, which I'm sure messes with her psyche you know, at times. Um, and one of the other faults that we have to talk about with her is her constant referral to Native Americans as dirty, filthy Indians. She's always referring to them as that, especially when uh, her son, Simran, is either interacting with one and or there's one scene where a Native American comes up to Simran while they're playing outside and just gives him like an artifact. I, it had some feathers on it. I don't think it was a headdress, but I think it was just like some sort of Native American hmm. artifact. and uh Sabra instantly just takes that away is like you shouldn't be taking stuff from those dirty filthy indians and it's just like lady lady like what what the fuck and then at the end she has the fucking balls to you know say like how her husband was a champion for native americans and how you know how much she loves her daughter-in-law who's a native american it's all just bullshit yeah, it literally is. There's no like turn or progression in her character and no. every every kind of change in her character is simply because Yancey said so. You know, like he even at the very close to the very end when they're f together for the last time and he's running the newspaper, he's just like, well, I'm in charge of the newspaper. You know, I'm going to vouch for Native Americans to have the right to vote. And it's this weird, like conflicting issue where the film 
and Yancey, they're like pushing him as this like progressive leader and icon. Yet at the same time, he's just so backwards, you know, and, and Sabra literally just follows every move. So it's like the film is very much about women having their rights. Like Sabra wants to have a women's club and, and Yancey later on defends Dixie, who's accused of like uh, adultery. And, but at the same time, there's just so many racist elements. And it's like, it's not even just from the characters itself. It's from the writing. It's from the direct standpoint of the screenwriter who planned this all out and wrote this dialogue. So it crosses that line and it asks the question, like whether this is a racist film or whether the characters in the film are racist. So what do you think about that? I mean, I, I just think it's both. I, I think you can't have, I think it's really hard to differentiate, especially with this film because the characters say so many racist things and the film does so, it does so much with not even just saying stuff, but with just represent representing uh, a lot of things. Um, so I, I I would say it's both. I, I don't know what you think uh, necessarily about that. Yeah, it's it's definitely both, you know, because you have like the the watermelon scene, for instance, that's that is from Yancey's point of view. And he's saying, like, look at that, Isaiah. Isn't that great? Again, which is this weird moment where you like you think Yancey's a great guy, but he's showing him like one of the most like racist fucking cliches that you've ever seen. Yeah. And that's just written in the screenplay as, as it is, you know, it's not like it's not only through Yancey or only through Sabra that we see these racist things, you know? Yeah. And Yancey is just problematic. He's a hypocrite uh, to be quite honest. I find a lot of what he says and what he does as just completely wrong. And, and even like his character and like his occupation itself is so odd. So he's an editor at a newspaper, but he's also a settler, but then he's also a lawyer. So it's whatever the film wants him to be. Yeah. It's like whatever fits the narrative best to make Yancey look good is what the film will do. And so, and one of the ironic things about the set design for Yancey is uh, in his office, he has a photo of Abraham Lincoln behind his desk, putting aside some of the history, but even just to have this like progressive, figure just sitting behind him makes the audience think like oh yeah he is so with with everything and he is so understanding of of others and and wanting to include so many people but yet just doesn't and and that and this is like towards the end of the film that he has that photo behind them so it's like no there's so much before you see his office and you see what what represents him from just a from material standpoint and it's clearly not the case when you back it up with what he says and his actions uh, within the film so i thought it was really smart with the production design like to include that i don't know if that was to say one thing or another but for me it it was just irony yeah i think it was just to kind of show who that man is or who they're kind of like modeling him after yeah. i mean i i personally think richard dix who plays uh yancey is is great honestly i love his like calm and demanding presence when it comes to like um, the court scene later on when it comes to like the gunfight between the kid and when he kills lon like i love this like big loud idiot and then he just crosses the line and contradicts himself like you're saying and the character itself is frustrating but i actually do really like richard dick's performance throughout this film he's this big grandiose performance and at times it kind of clinges on to that uh you know that kind of pre-sound era where it's just way too much dialogue and he's just ramping and and raging all about his like testimonial or when he's in the court scene but i really do like this kind of like bravado and and big tough guy almost john wayne like before john wayne 
I think he plays the part well. I don't. I, I don't like it uh, because all I see is a lot of overacting and and just trying to be something bigger than you're not. And I think that comes again. It comes from the acting styles of the time. I, you know, I think that a lot of these actors are still transitioning and still trying to figure out what works best in sound films versus silent films. So I can. I can give that to them that maybe it's not like exactly perfect, but I didn't love his performance. I actually found some of the way he delivers the lines annoying. Like he's really forcing a Southern accent. And he's also, he has these like weird, like Yelps and like, I can't, I don't even know like the word oh, he put behind. Uh, I and, love uh, this. It's so like, just, it's like trying to do like a war cry, but I don't like He does it like when he's leaving at the beginning from his like, in-law's mm-hmm. house and it's just yeah. like what the, what the hell are you i love doing? it it's so weird and bizarre like it's like that weird actor kind of cage vibe where it's like where did that come from i don't know it just kind of like came out of his mouth and yeah. to like back up some of the things that i love about yancey and one particular scene so we talked about this kind of uh, outlaw that's taken over uh osage county and and osage oklahoma and his name is lon yuntis or yuntis and he is kind of like the outlaw who's killed the previous uh newspaper publisher and everyone's afraid of him around town. And Yancey's this like tough, brawling man who comes into town. And he's like, well, he's going to listen to me because he has to. And that's like, all right, whatever, whatever. So he gathers the folks, people around, and he's given this almost large uh, sermon, essentially. Yeah. Talking about like the destiny, the future of this town, how he's going to clear everybody up. And you can tell that the film and the filmmaking is like slowly building up the tension. You see Lon and his gang kind of like come into the back of the group of people. And you're like, okay, I'm vibing with this. This feels like very modern Western. You know, you're setting up this like duality. You see uh, Richard Dix play as Yancey. He's like kind of slowly revealing his guns. It's all done very subtly. You know, these are just like two wide shots of the two men back and forth. Um, And you're like, okay, what's about to happen? Like what's they're going to have a shootout between everyone. And with this line I love where Yancey is just like, I'll tell you what his name is. I'll tell you what his name is. Like he's like working up to say that it's Lon Yuntis. And he's about to like basically say like, it's you. Like you're the problem with this town. And then all of a sudden Lon shoots at him from across the entire entire meeting hall. And, and Yancey ducks down and dodges the fire. But he pulls up two pistols and just like shoots so many bullets into Lon yeah. and just kills him immediately. And then as soon as all the smoke and everybody calms down for a second, he just says, was Lon Yuntis, and it's like he's about to say what his name is, and then just changed it to was because he just murdered him. And I thought that was such a cool, in a film that's so dated and has all these other issues, it felt very modern and and like in your face, very like Tarantino esque when it comes to like the Western aspect of it. Yeah, I can definitely see the Tarantino aspect in it. It's pretty reckless when you think about how the scene is set up that they're just in this crowd of people and. Yeah, I love that, shoot, though. They're yeah. just shooting over, like, heads of, like, this mass group. It's it's awesome. It's so badass. And that's one of, like, many moments that Yancey and Richard Dick's performance are, like, really like. The stern, just, like, I don't give a fuck who you are. I'm going to take you down. Like, this just bravado and confidence that I, like, really enjoyed. I did like that sermon scene. I think it has a lot of... There's a lot of good things that he says before he shoots uh, Lon. <laughs> Is, uh, so... To also kind of set up, like, Lon was kind of, like, bullying this this Jewish man, uh, Saul Levy, um, in some earlier scenes, and Yancey kind of comes Right when they get to town, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Yancey sort of comes to his rescue. Um, So Saul, like, comes to the sermon is like, hey, can can I sit on on this? And Yancey's like, of course. So Saul sits in the front, and Yancey is starting to talk about, like, inclusivity and how the community 
uh had like the church hall and, and space which it's also ironic because the the sermon is being given in like a gambling house because there's no other structure uh for a church just yet because they're still building the towns but anyway so this is like where this church meeting is happening and so he talks about how everyone's included including people of hebrews of hebrew descent so great you're including jewish people into this but then he sort of says like oh yeah but not native americans and points to a group of native americans who are sitting in the back of the hall he's like yeah you guys aren't really kind of a part of this you guys can kind of just stay off in the background so yeah, again one of those like scenes where it's like oh cool like great you're including everything and yeah there's like this cool like shootout between you know him and lawn but then you're still taking the time to point out native americans and kind of saying how they don't belong yeah within you're like, your oh, inclusive community that you're trying hmm. to build up yeah like oh why'd you say that um yeah so i i, I actually kind of like the saul levy character he has some uh pretty interesting lines uh throughout the film uh so one of the lines i think to kind of talking about him and yancey um so he says they will always talk about Yancey. He's going to be a part of the history of the great Southwest. It's men like him that build the war who build the world. The rest of them like me, why we just come along and live in it. So it kind of plays with how Yancey is the manly man. And Yancey is this guy that everyone should want to be. And especially as a pioneer and representing that, but then also it's kind of self hurting Saul as a person. Cause he's kind of saying like a person like me. So is that saying like a person like a Jew is it saying someone who is, cause he's kind of like a smaller built guy. So someone who isn't as big and as willing to go out there as, as Yancey. So it kind of plays with like the psyche of what it actually means to be a man. So it kind of plays with those gender roles where it doesn't really need to be. Yeah. That's a little odd. I mean, Saul, I think his whole character is kind of like pointless in this movie. Honestly, he just like adds a couple humorous lines here and there. Other than that, he just hypes up Yancey, just like in that line you read, he doesn't really do much in this film. And a lot of people in this film just look at Yancey as just like, God, you know, he yeah. just, this guy comes in out of nowhere and just says he's taking over this newspaper and everyone just like, all right, hey, yeah, that's cool. You're pretty awesome, dude. Like everyone's just like obsessed with this guy. And it's, it doesn't really make any sense. They don't really like prove his worth from the very beginning. It just, it's just very unclear why people love Yancey so much. Yeah. Th um, there's certainly a lot of like holes that they need to fill up with backstory. And even with, uh, with the kid, uh, this like outlaw. So I guess he's supposed to be like Billy, the kid, wink, wink, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, with his name being like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so the way they first introduced the kid is he happens upon Yancey and Sabre at the beginning of the film when they're first going into a stage, they're kind of like camping out and all that. So they're like shitting themselves. You're like, Oh God, what's going to happen then? And she's like, Oh, it's just the kid. This is a guy who I used to like run around with and just like be buddies with. So it's like, okay. So Yancey, again, going back to your occupation. So you are an editor, you're a lawyer, you're a settler and you run around with outlaws. So does that make you an outlaw or was the kid used to be a settler with you? what what's going on and there's like all this yeah. like backstory that you're like i feel like we should know more about this but they're the screenwriters and the film and the director is kind of like yeah that doesn't matter what matters though is like this these cool shootouts or like this cool land rush scene or like these big sets or the comedy that we're going to make fun of all the black kids i didn't have too much of a problem with like yancey's backstory i think with with um the kid who's this like prominent character in his life which you don't really know why in particular. I just kind of look at that, that he was like an outlaw at one point in time. He rang with the, he ran with a bad crew and just did a bunch of bad shit like John Morrison from, uh, 
Red Dead Redemption, like trying to redeem himself in a way. I mean, um, yeah, but yeah, but... it just doesn't explore that conversation or that relationship enough, especially when you go down further throughout the film and when the kid dies and he has to kill the kid. Like, you don't really understand why that affects him so much. Yeah, and and I think that's the thing is though is like they get into the shootout and like he has to kill the kid when the kid kind of uh, bull rushes into the town and it's like there's like a lot that's supposed to be there that isn't talked about. They should they there should have been some backstory like yeah like we could chalk it up to yeah you know it it doesn't need to be explained but I feel like when it gets to that kind of critical moment where he has to kill this like former friend of his I would like to know where their relationship was. Yeah, because it does and, affect him a lot. Yeah, you're yeah, right. it, it certainly does. So, it's uh, it it's interesting character development and like side plot, and I think that kind of like encapsulates like just the whole story structure of this film in general, which is a lot of just like vignettes. It's very episodic uh, in a lot of ways, where it kind of just goes through like different phases of their lives because this does take place over a forty year period, which is. Uh, we were kind of talking about, I was like, I think that was like the first thing that we both pointed out when we first started talking about this movie is the story structure and how it, it is episodic, but it goes through like a long period of, of time. And I think that's actually the trend that I've seen in a lot of Best Picture winners, especially some early ones. So we're going to see kind of this like 40 year, 30, 40 year period that gets like expanded upon in movies like Cavalcade and The Great Zigfields and How Green Was My Valley. And sort of in like movies like The Last Emperor, Driving Miss Daisy, Forrest Gump, and A Beautiful Mind, where you have like these just central characters, and then we're just seeing their life progress over time, which I think is a very interesting story structure for a Best Picture winner because there's no like central narrative, but there's a lot of these vignettes that kind of add enough to make you feel like that you are taking away stuff thematically and from a narrative standpoint. Yeah, in terms of like Simran, I think the if I were to like describe the overall structure, it's about Yancey and Sabra's um, development in Oklahoma, but it's also essentially like a mini biopic about Oklahoma and Osage um, specifically. And that's kind of like a hard thing to explain um, to like someone who hasn't seen the movie. Um, But it does just take huge gaps in between their lives. And it's definitely noticeable throughout those other nominees and other winners that you mentioned. And I think I have a reasoning maybe. And when you think of Academy voters and um, the best picture winners and you're looking at those and they take a course over a long period of time, a lot of those are about like, oh, how times have changed. And I think a lot of these older Academy members are looking back at these films and it reminds them of a time that they liked or the time that they lived through. But it's also constantly questioning of, wow, a lot of things have changed. Like things are very different. And as like an older, like mainly white man who were a part of the Academy and are still mainly the dominant part of the Academy and mostly above 60 years old, they're looking back at their life and being like, wow, I love those times. And like, look how much has changed. I'm a different person, but look how much the world has changed. And I think that might be the reasoning for um, why there's so many common similarities to these films. Yeah, it, it's certainly possible. Um, I do, I feel like there is an argument though that like these people who would be voting at the time, they would have to have been born maybe exactly at 1889 or like a little bit beforehand. So maybe, so they couldn't have like really seen enough of like this old timey way of life to like fully like maybe appreciate it. I mean, I don't know. We, you know, we don't know the exact voter base besides that it was just like white males for the most part, who are voting on these movies. But yeah, but it is certainly interesting to see how the world is developed and how life is developed over time, especially when you look at it through like Saber's lens, because she is seeing it from as this like pioneer woman and 
seeing it from this open space. And, and at the end of the film, it's 1929. So it's basically a year before the present day when the film did come out. And there's Osage is not like a city. She is in a big office where the newspaper is being distributed and, and printed. Um, so she's interesting as a character because she's seen so much change and she's supposed to change herself, even though we don't get a full idea of that. So it's like, you know, kind of going back to, you know, Yancy and the kid, it's like they make all these like kind of big moments. It's like these big episodic moments in all their lives, but then there's not enough to kind of like fill it in as to like how we got there. We're kind of just supposed to like, just say like, oh, okay, this is what it is. So it's, it's certainly interesting with how time is played with and then shown over time throughout the film. Yeah, it, it hops a lot, and I totally totally agree with you. There's that kind of dissonance between those big time jumps to like where there's that connective tissue. And the fact that Yancey is kind of all over the place, you lose a lot of Yancey and Saber's relationship. The very beginning and up until probably like an hour into the film, it's very much about Saber and Yancey and their back and forth relationship and struggle and kind of like planning and building their future. Um, but then it gets to a point where Yancey is just like so out of the picture. He's so gone. It's up to Saber to kind of carry the film. And I think because of that, you lose their relationship. You lose why they like each other. And it kind of like affects the end uh, later on, which we'll get to. I don't want to spoil the ending of the film yet because I find the ending interesting. Yeah, it I mean, it doesn't fully work for me. Yeah, I, yeah. Yancey's character again, like he he just keeps on like fucking off and doing kind of whatever he wants. So it leaves those gaps. You know, it, initially it's at first it's like a five year gap when he leaves, and then it's another uh, few years, and all of a sudden it feels like maybe like twenty years where he's just like gone, but it's really not. So it's it's really hard to understand like how his and Saber's relationship develops and then how she sort of handles that because you were just seeing kind of the end result of it. So we're supposed to assume that everything is fine, but you definitely want you you just want more out of these films. You need more of that background to to make it a better story. And especially when we're talking about it again in the sense of as a best picture, I I want like a fully developed story. I want characters where I feel like there's enough background. There's enough to talk about them. When we talk about like all quiet on the Western front, there's so much that you can already tell about Paul and like his background. And before he even goes back home, like to his family, you know, and wings and especially wings and sunrise where it's all silent and you get so much, you know, just from the characters interacting with others that you can get from their backstory. And there are pieces that can fill into from their past, but with Yancey and Sabra, there isn't much being filled in there. It's kind of just a progression just forward. You know, it's just going forward in time and never like looking back, which is a theme in and of itself because we're talking about westward expansion and, and the settlement of, of these areas in the country. But then again, you still want more f- from a story standpoint because it just makes it easier to digest and understand instead of just having to safely assume like that's what they meant or that's what is supposed to be happening. Yeah, you definitely lose that relationship between Yancey and Sabre when because most of their dialogue together is very just political. It's a very about like setting uh, the agenda that Yancey wants to push out and him kind of demanding between the two of them, like what's right and what's wrong. The film just becomes so full of itself where it's like pushing these, this ideology that it kind of forgets what the actual character should do or should represent. And you just kind of like it loses itself into it's trying to push all these different things. And it just kind of loses their relationship entirely. And that doesn't even mention the kids, you know, they have like three different kids in this film and it, do they just like barely have any point in this entire movie? Yeah. There's zero point to uh, 
I think it's two children. Yeah, I think it's two children that they have, Simran, and then I forget the the daughter's name, but actually kind of it was really funny with how they played her. Uh because so at one point when she's a kid, she talks of she says, like, oh, I'm just gonna marry a, a rich old white man. I, she just says that like kind of randomly in the film. Like her and her mother are like kind of and Saber are, like going back and forth to each other. And then the last shot you see of their daughter is she's just with her husband who's an old white man so i thought that was like really funny <laughs> of, of how like they were like pulled that off and and that goes back into how like they, again they're able to to build this world and build it with the sets and and kind of fall along like a natural progression uh one, like a few of those you can see in and the set design of the bixby hotel so when they first get to a stage in 1889 uh, the hotel they stay at is called the Bixby Hotel. And at the end, when Sabra is getting this like dinner in her honor for being the, this first congresswoman, it's at the Bixby Hotel. I think it's called the Savoy Bixby Hotel. Um, so it's definitely expanded and gotten bigger. Uh, Pahuska Avenue has expanded. It's not just like this wooden sign on a corner. It actually has like an official like metal sign on it. So it's like, you know, they do follow through with some of the set design and, and some of the character development, but more like the comedic aspects to like, to like really make it pay off uh, in the end. So I kind of like that, but going back to Yancey and his desire to want to be progressive and in- include everyone, which becomes a little bit of a debate between him and Sabra. So sort of like the last like big acting scene we get from Richard Dix as Yancey is when he's talking about this like editorial article that he wants to write about native Americans and defending them. But he then calls them the red man and when talking about them and he's like, and he says it's about time to give them full citizenship as li- and live as free as the white man lives. First off, uh, you are going to deem Native Americans get all these rights and stuff, but still refer to them as the red man and to give them full citizenship in a country and land which they were here first and you weren't and you're settling in their land and you admit yeah, you're as free as the white man, not even just as white people, but as just the white man. Thoughts on yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of inexcusable looking back at it now and seeing the language, but I try to like look at it at the times and, and I still think that Yancey would be like insanely progressive. Like if he told some of the other white men in the town this, like they would probably be like lose their mind, like go absolutely fucking crazy. Yet he's still very progressive in that way. Yet, if looking back at it now, it's like, whoa, what the fuck? You're just you're being so counterintuitive with the way you're like talking about yeah. these people and just like changing, changing everything based on how you like regard them, how you speak about them. It doesn't matter because you're trying to like help them in a way. I, I don't know. It's like someone who like says they're not racist because they have a black friend. What? That's not a fucking reason that you're yeah, not racist. That, that, that what are you talking work. about? What are you talking about? Yeah, that's what Yancey kind of sums up to me overall as like his character when it comes to like race. And when you say like the people would go crazy, you're saying like they would go crazy against him or crazy like, yeah, like you're totally right. No, no, crazy, crazy against him. Like I yeah. think they purposely make Yancey this like progressive figure for the time. And I'm not saying like no one else was more progressive than this one character in this movie. No, it's just like, I think the movie thinks he's like the most progressive people. And, and I, I would imagine even at the time of this movie's release, there was probably people that were like, fuck this movie. This movie's just like leftist propaganda, honestly. Yeah. Well, not in the reviews, the reviews loved it. Uh, especially in the New York times, they absolutely ate this up. Uh, but also, uh, so Saber's response to Yancey wanting to write this editorial, uh, which we were just talking about how, people would go crazy she goes citizenship for indians 
give them the vote and people here would mob you. And this comes like 10 minutes before where Sabra is like defending Native Americans when she becomes a congresswoman is like, yeah, which is like, what? where's this turn? Just because like, and this is coming because Yancey left and because his editorial article, which had good intentions, was such a big success that you're now looking at him like he's this like great figure. Yeah, it's simply just because that man told her to do so. (laughs) It's simply because Yancey is the voice of all reason. And if you argue with him, you're wrong or you're dead or you just eventually agree. (laughs) That's the only only way you can get past Yancey. And it's not even that because Yancey told her. It's because other people recognized. Like, I think it was people in government. She said recognize that Yancey was right. And so she's like, oh, well, if other people in higher up positions are saying that, then I must agree with that. Yeah, I don't know. You know what? Have your own voice. Have your own thoughts. Like you're especially as someone who's supposed to be this congresswoman at the end. You you aren't exactly who you are, which ironically kind of plays into our politics today. But anyways, it, it, it she's such a there. They're all hypocrites. I think the only per- the only people that aren't hypocrites are Isaiah and Saul Levy because they just stick true to their characters, which are just un- at times very unfortunate stereotypes in 1930. Yeah, yeah. I just think it's her just saying, "Oh, like my husband wanted it," and I guess he she came to the conclusion. But again, the film doesn't tell us that, nor does it even like allude to what it might be. It's just kind of alludes to that. Yeah, she agreed eventually. You know, it took yeah. some time, but she said, "Yeah, like." Because he was in charge of the paper, and then she looked back and was like, "I miss Yancey. He was right about all these things. Like he's the perfect man." Yeah, what, what, wasn't that Yancey such a great person? Yeah. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> I, I, I just like it's like all I can like say about these characters in this film is just like "Fuck off." Like you are you're promoting an agenda that is isn't right. It isn't fair to so many people. It it has these representations of people that aren't politically correct at all and it won best picture so I, again like i don't know like what to make of it when we put into that context of other winners and then talking about how the the academy just doesn't no one talks about this film and it, and it needs to be talked about because it's so what i mean outside of the the technical stuff that we were talking about that we liked it just has all these problems with it with 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 I mean, for me, I, I know you like like Richard Dix as an actor, but I don't really think anyone else was like really that compelling from an acting standpoint. And then the, the screenwriting isn't really strong at times. It can get very boring. The structure is bleh. It's just all of it for the most part outside of the land rush is just like I'm going to stick my middle fingers up at it because I just like don't like it. It's very problematic. Yeah, I totally agree uh, with most of those points. I and I want to point out to Isaiah because we kind of brought the conversation up with Eugene Jackson and described the way he's introduced uh, in the story. And yeah. um, from that point on, he's kind of just, again, played up his jokes with uh, Yancey and his family. And he's the kind of funny guy. Like he wants to come out with like a full cowboy outfit and kind of like come out to church with the family. But no, nope, Yancey says you can't come. And he doesn't say why you can't come. He just says like, no, you need to protect our house. That's that's yeah. what he's saying. Yeah. yeah like, and, and you don't even first see uh isaiah all you hear is all you see is yancey and saber like walking to the church and you just hear laughs in the background and that's just because it's you know isaiah just walking up trying to be trying to fit in trying to be a part of this community in this town and again yeah yancey's just like no you you can't be a part of this because oh you need to go protect this house here take my gun and go run back to the house and, and you just stay there and don't be a part of the community and inclusivity that i'm going to talk about but then 
completely contradict in many different points of the of this scene and the following scene the script and i think this is where it really comes to like again how racist the script is itself and not just the characters you know so they're just constantly using isaiah as a gag whenever they want a good joke and kind of lighten up their mood they throw him in and then one the once to the film gets to the point where they're like "Mm, we don't need him you know we can use uh, saul or like some other person to like throw in some jokes let's just get rid of his character so like during the gunfight with the kid Isaiah tries to like protect Yancey or like the family and he just yeah. gets gunned down, gunned down immediately. And then from that point he dies. Well, what we presume is dead because we don't see him for such a long time. It's like a long minutes, drawn out death too. Yeah. A long drawn out death as he like dramatically falls. And it's fucking horrifying just seeing this like young kid who's been shown as only a, like a fucking piece of comedy and the way the film treats him. And then he dies and it takes like 10 minutes for them to even like address the fact that he died. They have to go through all this stuff with Yancey and the kid. And then finally someone brings in his dead body and everyone's just quiet. And they're just like, oh, my God. And what I found so weird about this scene is that everyone seems like remorseful that it happened. Is that Yancey gets handed Isaiah's body. He grabs his, his body and it's like this wide shot of their living room. He turns away from the camera, faces like the wall away from the camera. Mm-hmm. And the scene just slowly fades to black. It was like, what the what the fuck is that? Like, yeah. it, there's no conversation about his death, who he was, why he mattered to this family. It, they literally don't care about him so much that they literally turn the actors away. Like, why would they do that? It makes no sense. Because they don't know how to handle a black narrative. I think so. Yeah, that, that, that that's basically it. it. It's. Yeah, I mean, I actually. Watching that scene, I, I felt, you know, it was more like sorrow I was feeling at that, you know, while watching that. So I didn't really pick up on the fact that they turned the actors away and they, they didn't say much because I felt like, oh, like this is, they're they're actually sad about it. But yeah, as from from the filmmakers and the screenwriters, they, they definitely could have had the opportunity to be like, fuck, like Isaiah's gone. And, you know, he was, you know, this, you could have almost said he was like the heart and soul of like the whole adventure which he was because he was so happy to like go out there and, and explore and and like that's like the good thing about his character and what he represented but then again he was just used as a comedic piece and and, that, and that's pretty much it so it, yeah it's really unfortunate how he was handled uh in total in the film yeah it's so puzzling the way that blocking is set up in that scene just like why would you have them turn away like at least like face the camera to show that they're sad but it's bizarre. It's like there's more to that scene and there's more context like to what happened in that scene. And like why I'm just so that scene just made me so curious. Like why was the blocking set up this way? Like why was yeah. it filmed this way? Well, we keep on talking about that, how the, it feels like there's so much more that need that should have been added uh, to each of these scenes into the into the background of these characters. But there just isn't. Don't know why, uh, but there just isn't. They, and they decide to not to and just let the film go, uh, which makes it for not really an enjoyable it, it makes it a boring watch at times because you're just like it almost feels like stories are incomplete and you, you're like well what like why did i just spend 20 minutes watching them have this shootout and have isaiah die only to have like no resolution for it it's he's like not even brought up again like simmering as a kid was like really looked up to isaiah you know isaiah was like really happy when they had their daughter um you know, he was like, oh, I'm going to teach you a bunch of things. And like, it was like a really sweet moment where you're like, oh, Isaiah is like really part of this family. And then they just get rid of him. And then he's not really brought up again, which is really just sad. So I haven't seen the remake of this. I know you haven't either. 
Yeah. Um, but I thought like long and hard about this film just because it's it's so bizarre and fascinating. But just look back in time and see all this horrible shit and just learn from how blind and ignorant people were. Right. Um, but also sometimes when I watch a film that I just like think could be better, there's like an interesting premise. I just think about like what it could be. And I'm just like thinking about this more and more. And I'm like, what if Isaiah's character was like the lead in this film? Like, what if it, we have the same beginning where it's like Yancey and it's the family and he's still part of the servants for all the, the family of Yancey and his wife. But what if the film just followed his path? You know, what if he did want to go with Yancey, but Yancey is the one who gets killed and Yancey, he kind of like represents the main character from that point on. And the film follows him and his pursuit to like seek independence to help native americans do all these things and i just feel like there's such a more interesting film there than what we got the the way you just described that i would love i would love to watch a movie like that like that's a movie that uh that that should be made like especially if they want to if you were to re- remake this movie because everyone in hollywood loves to remake films now and that would actually f- fulfill like these standards that we brought up at the beginning because you would have you know this main character who is from an underrepresented group you could really touch upon you know native americans rights in this time when they were really just completely disregarded uh, for for a long time before that they were completely disregarded um so yeah i i would be into that type of film but then again we don't have that so it's really hard to it's like wishful thinking to like yeah exactly have that and want that yeah I'll have um, yeah. to I'll have to write it or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's well, not for me to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, you know, yeah, it isn't for us to do, but it is certainly interesting if, if we were to pose that question for all these all these best picture winners, especially ones that we didn't like or that we were sour on because it could really it could really make it interesting. Well, maybe just for us how these films could go because I know there are definitely some films where people loved it where I didn't love it or a film where you loved it and, and I loved it but not everyone else loved it. So it, it goes kind of you know all over the place, but I definitely would be interesting to see like that perspective of Isaiah and that character um, expanded upon more, especially in this sort of environment of expansion and settlement and pioneering and, and creating something for yourself, which is what the film is really trying to get to a lot of the times, but it has all these different things that, that take over it that you're like, oh, that's, that's not good. Yeah, it's like, oh, God, why'd you have to do it that way? There's so many other better avenues you could have taken this film. Yeah, certainly. And I think to wrap up some of the the kind of little tidbits about the film here, while it was the second highest grossing film of 1931, due to the depression during the time, theaters were mainly based in cities. So you have the rich that could kind of still go to these showings. Yet it was still the second highest grossing film, but it also lost $565,000 on a budget of one point four million dollars and it did though make it back though over time over over reruns and different showings of the film so it it makes some of that some of that budget back yeah it just shows kind of how outlandish this budget was for this huge production and you definitely see it in times you know when we talk about the land rough sequence what i do want to take one little nod and moment to recognize is the i love the makeup i thought the makeup in this film was like pretty pretty outstanding while even the old lady makeup of sabra because that that one i thought wasn't like super great i thought just her character but i actually thought 
um like ricky's character and saul levy's characters th- that older makeup was actually really well done yeah i thought it was really impressive for 90 years ago like honestly yeah i think saber is probably the worst out of everyone but i was still really impressed the way they kind of like slightly exaggerated it more and more throughout the years i was pretty impressed by that especially being 90 years old yeah certainly and one final thing you wanted to talk about the ending because uh, of how you felt like it wasn't tied up properly. Yeah, so we talk a lot about like Yancey and Sabra's connection, and that is kind of like the heart and soul of the film, other than the kind of biopic of Oklahoma. So what happens in the very end, for anyone who hasn't seen, is essentially that Sabra's she's a congresswoman now. You know, she talks about how her son is married to a Native American and how she like believes and advocates for all their rights, uh, yada, yada, yada. She has this character turn for no reason other than she just says she does from that point on she goes to like part of the town that has a bunch of oil uh, mills and oil wells and she is going there to kind of just inspect it and what happens is that there's an accident in the oil mine i actually really love the moment and i think it's something that we see in a lot of oscar films where it's like a close-up of a character kind of putting the pieces together whether a situation or a person they're kind of like putting this and they're turning the gears in their head and it's when they're talking about this accident and they're like, oh, someone's down there and and uh, he's really, really injured. But he saved like hundreds of us men down there. And they were like, oh, do you know who it is? Like what they say? And and the guy's just like, oh, they they the man told us to call him like old Yance. See this kind of like close up of Saber's character. And we see the the wheel starting to turn in her head and the revelation that like, oh, this is like her husband. This is the man that she's like looked for for years now at this point. And has been basically lost to the West. And I like love that idea and that kind of close up of her face. But again, like the, the relationship was in two, it's just not earned to like get that final moment, you know, while it's like touching to see them reunited again. And of course he's done this big heroic hero act to save this one. You don't even see him do that because it would ruin the effect of her getting that kind of twist and real realization. And two, it just it's not earned. Like I said, the relationship just isn't in depth enough to really care whether they're together or not. Plus, you just constantly question Yancey as a fucking man and just a human being. The fact that he leaves his wife and children constantly there. It's like, yeah, how would you still like this guy? Like after years of him leaving you literally to work in an oil mill for no reason, just because he wants to. Why would you still care about this dude? Yeah. And, and that's it's like so random that he's just like happens to be in this oil mill in the same town. But yet he never goes and visits his family like he has the ability to and you know are, are we supposed to assume that maybe he went like crazy did he like get into like some like drug and like alcohol bender i don't know <laughs> but i mean seriously like w- when we have these like types of uh these like story arcs of characters who just disappear there's usually something going on with them like mentally uh it could, it could be for a number of reasons but yancey's you know mental issues are just that he's an asshole and egotistical (laughs) like seriously and 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 he just decides just to do whatever he wants but then at the end he's still in the same area in town where there's an an oil there coincidentally there's an oil explosion as his wife is walking through and it it really like just makes no sense and it's just more for like this huge dramatic effect for the end of the film but i don't think it really works at all no it doesn't work but i do love the idea i think that's an awesome cool little end to a film it just doesn't really work in this context it reminds me of that like 
it happens in more films. The only thing that's really jumping out to me is like La La Land where you get that like sweet ending where the two like make eye contact again. And just like you, you just kind of like have to analyze in your own head through the characters and the actor's eyes, like what they're trying to say back and forth to each other. And just kind of like showing that realization of like what could have been what happened or this realization that it is Yancey finally that she's finally seeing him again, even though it's horrific that he just died. I love like yeah. the idea of it, just not the execution. Yeah, even if like they just had a moment, like a scene before where Yancey just come back and then he's like, yeah, I'm going to be back here and I'm finally going to settle. I'm going to work at the oil well. And she's like, okay, that's great. I'm actually touring that in a little bit later. He's like, oh, great. I'll see you later. And then that's when he died. Like, and even that would have like just simplified it and made it be like, oh man, like, like that, like that would have been a better dramatic effect. But then it's just like a random encounter. And I, 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 there are so many questions and like open it endings to like so many parts of the story and narrative that you're there's so much like unresolved that you're just like when you finish your film you're you're just like that that that's it that that's just how it ends cool yeah it's it's so bizarre and and another huge issue probably like the last issue that we'll touch upon which is not like a direct issue of something shown or said in the film but it's in fact like an entire gap of history so while Simran is mainly about you know this couple and their relationship it's heavily reliant on like this biopic of essentially Oklahoma and this uh, raise and construction up of Oklahoma yet it takes place from 89 all the way up to about 1929 yet it completely ignores the horrible acts in Tulsa Oklahoma yeah where we have these huge, huge, horrible acts against a bunch of African-Americans in what they would call Black Wall Street, which was essentially destroyed in 1921 in uh, June 2nd. So it's just like this huge gap. And while a film that's trying to be so progressive when it comes to like Africa or trying to, it's definitely not it's trying to be progressive when it comes to like Native Americans and African-Americans and uh, women suffrage throughout the film. It just completely ignores this horrific act done by all white people to this segregated group. It's it's like a huge moment of Oklahoma's history that is one ignored and rolled under the rug. And if there is a remake, there's plenty of room to work with in that uh, era. I know Watchmen just kind of killed it, yeah. by winning all these Emmys for it, their season. But uh, I think there's more to be told in Oklahoma. Yeah, there, there's certainly a lot of history that isn't talked about. You know, outside of what happened at, on Black Wall Street, there's also the just taking over the land of Native Americans. There's also you can talk, you can take it from the sense of the industrialization of the world. So we again we open up in this big wide open landscape there's so much land for for fi almost like 50,000 people to just take claim and and build these new lives on and then at the end it's just oils being drilled up out of the land there's all these buildings there are cars at the end of the film so it plays into like this environmentalist side of me where you see all this beauty in the land that's just like taken away at the <laughs> yeah, end that... for 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 really what like what like what did they succeed in well, that's promoting it. I mean, the film is yeah. essentially promoting it by promoting the, just the rays of the West and and to like increase production and just increase livelihood in these cities that are kind of like growing and growing. So, yeah, it completely ignores that. I mean, that's a whole other topic for the film that it could address. But I mean, even down to like women's suffrage, the, the Sabra and like the other women in this film, they're so petty. All they talk about is like their self-image, what other women are going to think about them. Yet at the same time when they're there in 1907, it was like women's suffrage. Like they could have had a scene at a rally where like they're actually like demonstrating and like advocating for their rights. Just like express more of that. This film is so surface level that it thinks it's like hitting on all these 
awesome like hot topic buttons but it just like never like actually digs deep enough to even explore any of them remotely yeah that actually brings up uh one of the characters tracy wyatt who's like this very snobby character you know she Mm -hmm. thinks very highly of herself and she keeps on talking about how her ancestors was a signer of the declaration of independence so she says this to saul levy this is like one of the last line that she has in the film so she goes one of my ancestors was a signer of the declaration of independence and Saul Levy goes, that's all right. A relative of mine, a fellow named Moses, wrote the Ten Commandments, which like points kind of in the face of like how Americans treated the Declaration of Independence during this time. It's like, oh, we have all this independence and all these rights to everything. But yet someone like Saul Levy, who sees all the hate because he's experiencing it as a Jewish man, he sees it at so many different levels. And he's like, yeah, you know, but, you know, I come from a background where my ancestors, they wrote the Ten Commandments, which is the basis of everything that this like white Christian narrative is a part of in this film. So it kind of, you know, pokes fun at, at them, you know, which as a fellow Jew myself, I was like, I was really happy to hear that. And I was like, let's go. Good job, Saul. Yeah. That was a, that's a funny line that I didn't really even take in that consideration, that context. Like I really just took it as like a straight joke, like, haha, Yeah. You keep saying that. I don't care woman. Like, and just like jabbing at her with this like little Moses line. Yeah, that's, no, that's they, really interesting. That it's a lot more in depth than I thought it would be. Yeah, no, there, there's a lot to his characters, a lot to religion in this film. To if we want, it, we could break. There's so much to talk about this film. You know, we didn't even talk about enough about like Dixie Lee and like kind of her story, wh- which almost is like a non-story in this film, just because it's like, oh, Yancey shows up randomly. He's going to protect Dixie Lee, who's being sued for being a nuisance because she's a prostitute but that's also never outwardly said and like everyone all everyone in the town including saber is like horrified that yancey is like defending her and then he like basically gets her off of whatever charge she was given um and again and that also goes back to the whole like women's suffrage and how they really could have taken this film to really promote so much and they didn't instead they decided to ostracize this one woman because she was put into a shitty place in her life that she didn't mean for it to go that way yeah, so when talking about the film, it was adapted by Howard Estra Brook, um, and it was originally based on a novel by Edna Ferber. And you can totally tell that there's, while we haven't read the book that it's based on, there's definitely changes that are made. It definitely like heightens certain characters. And I would guess all my money on this that her book is mainly about Sabra, and it's about her um, advocating for Native Americans, advocating for women's rights. And the film just completely twists it around. It makes it all about Yancey and how Yancey is the one who's like convincing Saber of all these things. Now, I haven't read the book. I don't know if that's true, but if I had to take a guess, I think that's exactly how this uh, screenplay was changed. Yeah, I I don't know. So I I can't really make a a statement on that, but I would I would actually venture to guess that it, it probably isn't just because. No one, again, like when we go back and talk about rep- representation in film and, and especially narratives, uh, there probably weren't many filmmakers who were willing to just talk about women's suffrage and women's rights and and have that be the main focus of a of a film, and which is disgusting and, and unfortunate. Um, so I, I, so yeah, so we haven't read this book. Clearly, the adaptation is something that is creates a lot of discussion for wrong reasons and not necessarily for the right reasons. Yeah, so that kind of leads us into now when we want to talk about, which is the fourth Academy Awards and all the films and filmmakers that won that particular year. So Simran was the first Western to win Best Picture. It was also 
nominated seven times, which was a record at the time of the fourth Academy Award. So it has this kind of like weird distinction entering the festivities of like, oh, like, is it going to win all these awards that it's nominated for? Um, so it, it definitely a lot to kind of break down from there. So let's start from the best cinematography category, which Simran was nominated for, but it actually went to Taboo for Floyd Crosby. Best Art Direction, Simran, Max Ray. Definitely deserved, right? I definitely feel yeah, like, I, that, like, like that deserved to win Best Yeah, Dome. while we haven't seen any of these other nominations, I think from watching Simran, it stands out in its production in terms of art direction, how big and grandiose all these huge sets were. It does feel like a really lived-in city throughout each of the kind of segments of Oklahoma. Yeah, there, there's so much that they build up over time. You know, when we're talking about how they you know, use like big structures like the Bixby Hotel and like Bahuska Avenue as like these set pieces that you see developed throughout the film. And even uh, talking about how Abe Lincoln was in Yancey's office, you know, well, there's so many like different things that they use to make it feel like that you're actually in Oklahoma in 1889 to up until 1929. Like they do so much of the art direction, the production design that I definitely really love. And they build basically a whole city that is used throughout other western films uh from rko's productions uh through time yeah you can totally see where that 1.4 million dollars went to the budget <laughs> yeah yeah it, it, it's pretty impressive how they built like a whole town so it's it's really cool at a grand scale but uh, moving on to best sound recording which was won by the paramount public studio sound department so not a film that won for best sound recording but it was just studio departments that won for that particular year, which is really uh, cool, I think, actually, and kind of represents the studio system that they had early on in Hollywood, that it that sound wasn't just for one film specifically, but more just for any of the films that that studio made in general. Yeah, it's cool. It's a nice little shout out to like the whole entire department for each studio with like, you, know, you got the United Artists, RKO, and MGM all competing against Paramount. I always wondered, and I try to do some research into this about like how many people got the Oscar, like the physical Oscar award, yeah. because like if you're giving it to a whole sound department, like how there's got to be a good amount of people, even in 1930s, like there's got to be a lot of people in that department. Like I wonder how many people is it just like studio heads of the sound department? I wonder. Yeah, no, it definitely makes makes me wonder too. It also makes me wonder how spread apart these sound departments were. So were they? Was it just they had multiple people fulfilling the same roles just on different sets? Or did they have like a guy uh, who was like a sound engineer have to run from one end of the studio lot to the other? So maybe that's why some of the sound is really bad because a lot of people are being rushed. I don't know. Maybe that's just like a wishful comedic thinking in my head that it was mm -hmm. like that. But really cool and interesting for how they how that's the only category that gets represented like that just for sound. Um, so moving, yeah. yeah, so moving on to Best Original Story. So now this is the pretext of Best Original Screenplay. That went to The Dawn Patrol, which was written by John Monk Saunders. This actually features what you're telling one, one of your favorite old-timey films, uh, The Public Enemy. Oh, yes, yes. I love The Public Enemy. I haven't seen most of the nominations here. Uh, I don't think any other nomination here. But The Public Enemy rocks. That movie's awesome. It like really is not represented here. And I think it totally deserves best direction, writing, and outstanding production. It's definitely dated, but it's like an early 
you know, mafia film that I think really set a lot of standards and a lot of cliches that we now see in like Goodfellas and all these, you know, famous mafia films throughout the years. Yeah, I believe you. I haven't seen it, but uh... oh, it's worth the watch. Definitely <laughs> check it out. I, I think it holds up of, of being like a fun mafia flick. Yeah, certainly. Best adaptation goes to Cimarron for Howard Esterbrook based on the novel by Edna Ferber. So do you think that this deserved best adaptation? When looking at best adaptation, it's not only considered the quality of the script, obviously, but more specifically how well the script was adapted. So I would imagine that Edna's Ferber's book is kind of super large in scale, like much of the film is taking across like many years. And this was probably one of the early films to kind of jump and and really show these huge time gaps. So I think it was probably awarded simply because of how much it spanned together, yet still kind of held the story together. Obviously, when we talked about reviews, they were much more fond of this back in the day because it was probably way more impressive the way this film was put together and how big it was and how many different kind of jumps in time there was. I bet people were just kind of impressed by that at the time. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's the case. That people were just impressed with the story itself and how much time it was taking over place. And I think that kind of plays into... When we're thinking about these films, they're, we're thinking about the more, more stories at this point in time because the original screenplay category is called Best Original Story. And then this is just Best Adaptation of a bunch of other stories, whether it's a play, a film, even a comic strip in this particular year. So I do think that probably that's why it won Best Adaptation, just because it at the time was a good story and was, at the time was well told, even though it doesn't hold up today. And that's actually the so this is actually the first best picture winner to win a writing category. Uh, and best adaptation is actually the second most common award outside of best director that a best picture could win throughout time. So which I which I think again is really interesting that you think uh, that a lot of best picture winners are just adaptations of other things, whether it's a novel, play, just something else someone else's story in history. So this is the first instance where uh, the screenplay and best picture go hand in hand. Um, and another th- interesting thing just about this best adaptation category is the nomination for the film Skippy, which was written by Joseph L. Mankiewicz and Sam Mintz, which is based on the comic strip by Percy Crosby. Uh, so for those who don't know, uh, Joseph uh, Mankiewicz, he was, he's part of like this like kind of rich family history of filmmakers. So he actually dr- would go on to direct the 1950 Best Picture winner, All About Eve, and then his brother Herman wrote Citizen Kane, which, if you ask some people, is considered the greatest film of all time. So a little bit of uh, Hollywood royalty is starting to butt up in in some of these categories. The Best Actor Award is given to Lionel Barrymore for A Free Soul as Stephen Ash. And now it's notable here to note that he is a part of the Barrymore family, which is brother to John, who is Drew Barrymore's grandfather. Um, who also appears in the fifth Best Picture winner, which you'll be hearing from us soon about, which is called Grand Hotel. Yeah, so uh, so we have, again, this representation of this like Hollywood royalty. So the Barrymore family is considered like this early on uh, royal family of Hollywood, which is really more spearheaded by Lionel. Uh, so he gets his first Oscar. So it's kind of this like indoctrination by uh, Ampass of the Barrymore family. So it's like, yay, we have this like royalty there. Um, but an, and actually another best actor nominee that year was Frederick Marsh for the Royal Family of Broadway, which is supposed to be about the Barrymore family. And uh, Frederick Marsh, uh, he will go on to win a Oscar over the next few years, which we will get to when that time comes. But moving on, uh, best actress goes to Mary Dressler 
for Min and Bill as Min Divot. Uh, Irene Dunn was nominated also in this character in this category for Sabra. And we also have uh, Norma Shear, um, who was the previous Best Actress winner. Uh, she was nominated for A Free Soul. So we have both lead actors and actresses uh, nominated for Richard Dix and Irene Dunn. Do you think that maybe, and again, we didn't necessarily see these other movies, but do you think maybe there was enough there that you felt could have warranted a best actor or actress win? It's hard to know. You know, we're starting to see these buildups of like royalty, as you're calling in, and these like kind of family lineage. And, and then you have the previous winners like Norm Shearer and all these people that are kind of like building up their dominance in the industry. And that might be just kind of like a handout to them since it's what we've kind of seen in the previous Oscars is, you know, whether you're having dinner with the Academy or kind of bribing them a little bit here and there, we can see some of these like changes start to take place. So I wonder like if, if Richard Dix is worthy of this award, I don't know, man, it's, it's hard to say. It's really hard to say. Cause I do like his performance, but like, I personally don't think yeah. that's, an Oscar-winning Best Actor performance. No, I yeah, I I wouldn't pick these uh, both Richard Dix and Irene Dunn, but again, this movie was so well well liked at the time, so I understand why they were nominated. Best Director Norman Tarug for Skippy, which is actually written by Joseph Mankiewicz, as we mentioned before. Uh, Wesley Ruggles was nominated for Cimarron, and another person that was nominated in his category was lewis milestone for the front page he directed all quiet on the western front and he's already a two-time winner so he's now being nominated again so again we're entering this phase of the academy where which we still see today where it's like oh you're going to see these typical these same people getting nominated and win based on what they're making whether that's a political thing they do or just based off of their work and i mean we really we really did love all quiet on the western front so i i think lewis milestone stone deserves to be there but does Wesley Ruggles deserve to be here for Cimarron? Honestly, I, I think so. I think the way that the time period was handled and the huge, just overall grandiose picture that is Cimarron. I mean, ignore all the horrible racist elements that we kind of really dug deep into in this podcast. Yeah. But I think there is this big structure that he, while it doesn't work at all times, I think that's more to blame to the writing side of things. I think in terms of directing, he really pieces this together. Even in the very beginning land rush, when you're talking about like establishing different characters and those characters like never even return. I think those small little details add up to like a bigger picture that, you know, Rusty Ruggles really had an eye for detail and especially constructing, constructing scenes and uh, making these gun shootouts, you know, like fun and quick pace, yet still being able to have time for just Yancey and Sabra to like kind of just talk amongst themselves in like a quiet set. I think it handles like this huge big picture together and I think it's worthy and best picture worthy or best director worthy. I don't know about that. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that it, he deserves the nomination more for the, again, the technical aspects, uh, the racism I cannot get behind at all. But for the tech, the few technical aspects that we really did like about this, I, I do have to give Wesley Ruggles that. So that leads us on to the outstanding production category for Best Picture. So the nominees that year were Trader Horn, Skippy, The Front Page, Eastland, and our fourth Oscar winner for Best Picture that year was titled Outstanding Production, Cimarron, which was produced by William LeBaron for RKO Pictures. I think uh, it may be time to ask the question again. Ooh, is yeah, Cimarron is. worthy of Outstanding Production? Is it worthy of the Best Picture Production? Fuck no. 
<laughs> just, just, yeah, no, it, it it certainly isn't. Um, I do have to make note that people do talk about this looking back as a very weak year of Best Picture nominees. So if we run through it very quickly, East Lynn was a six on IMDb, and these are out of out of ten. Uh, the front page was a six point seven. Skippy was a six point three, and Trey Horn was a six point two. And Simmerin on IMDb is a 5.9. So just overall, like really weak ratings for that category in general. So now when we look at the way that Simmerin fits in with our ratings and other ratings. So I gave this film a whopping 45 out of 100. John, what do you give uh, Simmerin? Uh, I would rank it around 50. So in context, uh, my lowest film so far is the Broadway Melody, which was at a 30. So I think with how this film has some admirable uh, moments in terms of its you know, cinematography from its um, overall production design and its kind of grand scale, I just think you know, we hit on so many of the racist agendas and kind of like mishaps and messy kind of storytelling at some parts that it kind of hits right in the 50 middle of the ground for me. Yeah, when I first watched this movie, I actually gave it a little bit higher at a 55. But then after, and this was before a lot of shit uh, that happened in 2020. This was like in February of 2020 when I first watched this movie. And uh, I still like was really like down on all, like really hated on all the racism that was in this film and couldn't get behind it. But I think I was more like, oh, but technically it was like really worked really well. But then after seeing a bunch of the other Best Picture winners, I was like, wow, this actually is truly poor compared to them so this uh yeah so i i I downed it a bit so now it's out of 45 so now our averages for the best picture winners i'm at a 61.5 and you are at a 61.25 so not great but obviously brought down by two out of the four best picture winners so far Uh, but moving on the rotten tomatoes percentage is at a 52 percent so a little bit over half of reviewers gave this a fresh rating which I would love to talk to those reviewers about that and those critics. Uh, anyway, so the average Rotten Tomatoes rating out of 10 is a 5.02. The audience score is a 25% and is a 2.66, their average audience score rating. And so far right now, it has the most Oscar awards at three total, uh, two for outside of the Best Picture wins for two different categories. So it's a little weird in the context of other Best Picture winners. We both deemed it not worthy. Uh, that is our final answer on Simran. John, any final thoughts before we sign off for this episode? Yeah, so the conversation always on this podcast, the name of the podcast is whether the films are worthy, the nominations are worthy. But I just want to take a moment, especially with this film, talking so much about these heavy topics. I just wanted to leave us on a note where I just want to address the audience and say that you're worthy. You know, like everyone is worthy uh, and we all have our faults and we all have good inside of us. And I just wanted to leave us with the fact that, you know, we can all be worthy. We just have to strive to be better. And uh, I hope the Academy can, you know, one day uh, at least acknowledge this film to push forward through their mistakes and just, you know, be better. And I hope the this inclusion that they're adding in 2025 really makes a difference. And I hopefully we see some change. Yeah, beautifully said, John. I completely agree. I can't wait for those days when it feels more like a very diverse and inclusion industry. So we're going to end on that note. Thank you for listening to this episode of Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And this is Worthy. I greet you in words taught me as a child. May you long travel the path of life in days that are calm and peaceful.
Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.